Welcome to Down to Zero, a series where we talk to game-changing climate entrepreneurs, innovators and investors about their journey into climate and where the sector is headed. We're your hosts, Shanice Mohinani and Florian Dahlhausen. Today, we're speaking about funding businesses that Lower Carbon Capital believes will unfuck the planet with Sean Shu, Chief of Staff and Investor at arguably the most famous climate VC out there. I don't know about that. That is a big, uh, that's a big moniker, but but thank you for, for having me, guys. We're really excited to have you. And today we'll be talking about where venture fits into the climate capital stack, how fixing the planet is hopefully not just good for the world, but also good for business and what areas in climate are most interesting right now. Sean, let's kick off with the rapid fire to get sure. things going. You have up to three words for each answer. First one, who inspires you in the climate ecosystem? Oh, man. I mean, is it too biased to talk about lower carbon members? I mean, on the one <laughs> hand, I think Chris is my boss. My Chris, my boss, Chris Saka, is very audacious with the way that he thinks about um, investing and deploying capital in the space, which I'm happy to talk about in, in a second. But Chris, for sure, Peter from Charm is also just this example of someone who comes from traditional software. I mean, he built an API business in the segment, sold it for, uh, I think, $3 billion plus. And he decides to go build a climate company because he's passionate about it. And, you know, in his in, in his words, not mine, he thinks that Charm will be bigger than segment ever was. Right. And so this idea that uh, we should be you know, uh, getting the brightest minds and best founders from all parts of the uh, you know economy, not just from specifically climate, to go build in climate. I think Peter Peter is uh, really a shining light in in, in that front. And uh, also, you know, I think a third example would probably be something like the folks over at Mill. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this company, but it's a an, again a lower carbon portfolio company. So again, it's all the lower carbon universe, but. You know, the folks over at Mill previously founded Nest. And so they're another example, another like North Star of people who built uh, real hardware products in the past, but more for a consumer use case that had nothing to do with climate, although Nest does have a climate impact angle in some in some form, uh, and then go full force into building climate hardware products for consumers. I, I think that they uh, are, are great too. So anyways, those that's some examples. <laughs> nice. Well, we got to get them all and down to totally. zero, and we know who to ask now. Yeah. <laughs> um, next one. Most beautiful place in nature that you've visited. Sorry, what was that? Most beautiful place in nature that you've visited. If you've ever been to China, there is a valley called Tiozaigo, which is short. You know, basically, it's the uh, at, at at the bottom of the Tibetan foothills, and it's kind of like a Chinese version of Yellowstone in some some uh, in some ways. Um, and the there are these rushing stream. I mean, it's very high altitude and elevation. The, the, there are these hills and mountains that are essentially in the shape of nine dragons. That's what the name of the uh, uh, that's what the name of the place means. And you'll find turquoise water, violet water, lakes that are beautiful, deep blue, just beautiful, beautiful kind of like display of nature. You know, would recommend anyone who who can make it out there to to to, to make some time to take check and take a look. Wow, if I knew that earlier, I would have planned a GSB trip there. But... Yeah, well, harder <laughs> well, these days, but uh, I think the first time I went, I was yeah. you know, maybe 15 years ago, but it was beautiful. Great. Uh, and finally, last one. One thing you want to change about your daily life to live a more climate-friendly life? Oh, man. Uh, a more... Fr uh, well, I, I want to electrify my home. I run and organize a essentially a hacker house. Uh, a bunch of founders are in the house, um, 
And it's a kind of a weird situation. It's a historical landmark, five-story mansion in the Marina in San Francisco. And so it's actually quite difficult to get approval to do any renovations of any sort in, for, for, for that house. And yeah, I mean, my, like, to give you it, like my electricity, my electricity bill and natural gas bill is insane to heat that place. It's like, you know, uh, four figure, uh, you know, bill. And so in any case, uh, uh, trying to <laughs> trying to electrify that home is good for my my wallet and also probably good for the planet. Definitely good for the planet, uh, but hard to do because of, you know, permitting stuff. But anyways, that's something I'm thinking about. Yeah, hopefully with the IRA incentives for home electrification yeah. and yeah. some regulation change, yeah. we can help get Not that about home. the money, unfortunately. It's literally about the city of San Francisco trying to be more more open to to, to change on, on that front. But um, it has more to do with the historical landmark piece than it has to do with anything else. But anyways, that's my own problem. <laughs> well, with that, welcome to Down to Zero. This is such a fun podcast. Excited to ha hang out with the both of you and talk climate and climate venture. Yeah, like we, we looked obviously into your background and we're really, really amazed at what we saw. You're the first investor we're having on Down to Zero. So this is going to be a cool experiment for us sure. as well. And you've been in venture, I guess, for a couple of years now, first at Dorm Room Fund, then at Floodgate, and then as a founding partner at Ondex Venture Fund, and now um, at Lower Carbon, yep. obviously. And now that we've kind of established a bit of like your venture journey, we'd love to understand a bit more about the person behind that journey and how you decided to make that leap into climate? Yeah, great question. So I've been in venture for six years, as you mentioned, you know, and the first couple of years were just being a generalist software investor. And so I've, I'm invested in, you know, uh, marketplaces, consumer, enterprise, uh, infrastructure, just kind of like the first couple of years was just trying to like, how do I get good at picking? How do I work with great founders? And what is this job actually, right? And so, you know, you're, you're catching me at a moment where it's not like I came into this job with the express purpose of being a climate VC, um, unlike some of my other colleagues. Um, you know, a lot of my colleagues at Lower Carbon are brilliant PhD scientists who started with the climate problem first and then became uh, investors because allocating capital in this problem was the most effective way that they wanted to spend their time. I started from uh, a different kind of lens, right? I, I wanted to be a great investor. I wanted to be a great venture capitalist. And I got that from, uh, you know, my first introduction to venture was through Josh Koppelman at first round, who, you know, taught me the ropes and Finn Barnes, who's a partner at first round at the time too. And uh, my first real job out of grad school after Dorm Room Fund, although Dorm Room Fund, we, we did some amazing things there and invested in some young founders under the age of 23 who ended up building unicorn companies. Uh, and so got a good sense of like, what do great founders actually look like? Floodgate was my first real job out of school to do venture full time in a real capacity. And, and at Floodgate, I became, you know, again, generalist software investor and, and got a good framework for, for how to pick intelligence companies for, 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 seed, and, for seed and pre seed, I'd, I, I would say, right? It was at Floodgate that I got pretty interested in climate as a major inflection that's happening in the economy. Yeah, Mike Maples, who frequently, I think, lectures at Stanford and went to Stanford several years ago, you know, he, he really turned me on to this idea of, you know, don't look for problems that are egregious and important to solve. That is important part of the entrepreneurial process. But, you know, think about inflections first. He has this framework called backcasting. That if you're curious, you should look up the article. He's um, got a lot to say about that. And so, you know, Mike and I would riff on like, what are the biggest inflections out there? 
what are change events that are happening there? Are they regulatory? Are they technological? Are they, you know, consumer behavior change? And I kept seeing a lot of interesting things happening in climate, uh, and particularly, you know, particularly around energy transition and carbon removal. I made the first carbon removal investment at Floodgate. We invested in a company called Living Carbon, which is also a lower carbon portfolio company, company that bioengineers trees um, uh, uh, and sucks carbon out of the air that are, you know, trees that are growing twice as fast, twice as big and harder. Maddie Hall, who is the founder of that company, is also a huge inspiration. She, I think, used to be chief of staff uh, to, to Sam Altman and did not come from a bioengineering or climate background. And she just really cares about climate and uh, ultimately decided to go build this amazing bioengineering company. And now she's doing really well. And so, you know, I started to see this wave of people who are trying to just activate into climate and, and, and learn about this inflection that's happening. Carbon removal markets could be a trillion dollar TAM someday. And so that's you know, one one area that got me really excited about that. And some of the smartest, you know, some of the smartest people uh, that I knew that were in this age cohort that were still in school, undergrad and grad school, were, were, were trying to move into figure out how do we build cl products for climate. And when you see just with the energy transition, the inevitable transition from a carbon-based energy system to an electron-based energy system, you know, it's just, it was just some, so much was happening in that space that I was really interested in learning more. And so I did a couple things. I tried to reach out and work with other climate investors or investors who are trying to become conscious about climate. A couple friends and I founded this organization called Series Green. Priscilla at True Ventures now runs that. And, uh, you know, basically we got together once a month virtually during the pandemic to just talk about topics in climate and to learn from each other in climate. Uh, I think that's actually one of the first touch points I had with Lower Carbon. Uh, our head of science and partner, Clea Colster, came in to speak about that topic, about carbon removal in particular, in one of our sessions. And, you know, the, the more I got activated in climate, the more interested I was in, in understanding the economic opportunities that would be involved in transitioning to a more resilient and sustainable economy. And this big aha moment came about where it was like, okay, this is a this is an another industrial revolution, really, right? This is everything that touches every real aspect of the economy. And it's also very, uh, you know, uh, very much an American dynamism, dynamism story as well, in the sense that we're talking about energy security, food security. There's so many intersecting lines in between climate opportunities and, and company building in climate, climate tech, to all those areas that I mentioned before. Not to speak of the moral imperative of trying to understand how to solve this problem, just be, you know, I've always been interested in global challenges of climate in many ways. Uh, the, the, the climate crisis is a, the most global challenge that we that we faced. And so ultimately, let me fast forward through it all. I became a partner at OnDeck, where I also spent a lot of time with the OnDeck climate cohort and, and mentored and spent time with climate companies. Um, I got a chance to invest in emerging markets and a lot of the best talent in emerging markets were interested in climate companies too. And so it... it <laughs> Over time, I realized, okay, this is really interesting and I'd like to spend time in climate. And after On Deck, I got introduced to, to Chris, who is the GOAT. Uh, I think Fortune wrote an article about him saying he's got the uh, fund with the highest multiple of all time. And, you know, having seen some of those numbers, uh, you know, can, can verify, like, one of the most successful investors of all time, exceptional human. And, and I just felt like there's a lot to learn from him and I wanted to be a force multiplier for him. Uh, and so today at Lower Carbon, you know, uh, I'm chief of staff here. I spend more than half my time investing, to be honest, you know, sit on the board of some of our electrification and software companies. I work with a lot of those companies, investing in software companies as well, but also plugging in where I can with a lot of the hard tech, deep tech stuff, particularly interested in energy transition, right? So looking at a lot of the rare earth metal supply chain uh, companies that are coming out of the woodwork to support that. 
um, looking at carbon removal because I, uh, um, you know, although Ryan Orbuck, who leads our carbon removal stuff, is uh, is is far and away the guru here. I'm just trying to keep up with him. But you know, doing a, a fair bit of investing, I also help manage, you know, uh, the portfolio in terms of connecting the dots between great people in the lower carbon network and founders, uh, particularly Chris's network and founders or LPs and founders, helping figure out when we should be uh, thinking about you know, follow-ons and when should we, where should we be allocating our time uh, as far as, uh, you know, really doubling down on XYZ company. And then there are the fun jobs where, you know, uh, it's like clear your week, we're going to go prep for a meeting that Chris has with such and such head of state to talk about climate, right? Or, or former head of state or something like that. So, sorry, that was a little bit of a long ramble, but that's my path and that's what I do now. And, and there's a lot to, lot to do. <laughs> Yeah, and it's awesome to hear about your journey. You touched on a lot of interesting things there, like the types of companies that you invest in, uh, carbon removal. We're going to get back to all those topics. Um, I'd love to pick your brain on the role of venture in the climate capital stack. Yeah. So $64 billion of new money was allocated towards climate last year, and a lot of that happened in venture. What role do you specifically see venture dollars playing within this capital stack for climate? Yeah, I mean, venture dollars are catalyzing catalyzing a lot of the you know uh, the hard tech and deep tech you know companies that are trying to take a crack at the climate crisis. Right? It will always play that role, I think, to me to 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 try to give someone that first check or first amount of serious capital to bring together the team and you know demonstrate that you can get to some degree of, of minimum viable scale is, is what I think about. Again, like deep tech and software are very different things. In software, it's very tried and true for how equity dollars and venture capital will help them. You know, they have between 18 and 24 months from that first check to, to basically stress test whether or not there's product market fit, right? And there are a number of software companies that exist in markets that are land grab opportunities that are execution first, where there's like seven different companies that all basically look the same. And it is a, a race to see who can raise the most money and become that, you know, hero brand for a particular type of product. And, and, and venture dollars have that, that's played out in so many different uh, markets, whether it's ride sharing or food delivery or whatever, what have you. Right. That's a very clear picture in deep tech and hard tech, which, you know, full full transparency and vulnerability here. Like I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what it means to be a good hard tech and deep tech investor is very, very different universe than software and different rules and different points of view on how to build those companies. I think for them, it, 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 the equity dollars are really helpful in getting the team together. And, and, and like I mentioned, like getting from, if it's a, if it's a company that's producing uh, a material, like we have companies that are building <clears throat> decarbonized steel, decarbonized, uh, uh, decarbonized cement, whatever, getting from one ton of production to 10 tons of production to a hundred to a thousand to tens of thousands of tons of production and more and building the, the actual facilities to get there. I think, you know, maybe where you're going with this question is like what other types of capital are available that uh, help people do this. I mean, part of our thesis is that there is a tremendous amount of non-dilutive capital for people to, 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 to get access to that help them along this journey. So um, the role of debt in project financing and, um, and venture debt to help some of these companies build those initial facilities, um, get the working capital to, 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 uh, invest in the upfront cost um, and the fixed cost to be able to produce at the XYZ scale, like, you know, phase two scale, phase three scale. That's where I think it's more appropriate to use those dollars than equity dollars, right? But you need the equity dollars to be able to a 
get those debt dollars and to be credible enough to get those debt dollars and get to a stage where you can do that, right? Uh, there's grants that's, uh, you know, that that's also, you know, there's non-dilutive capital and government money that's grants and government money that's non-dilutive. And then there's also debt capital that is non-dilutive, but also, you know, potentially expensive. And so, yeah, I think that's uh, that that's probably what, what, how I see the world. That was literally my next question. So thank you for preempting it and answering it in advance. Can you give us some examples of how you've worked with your portfolio companies to secure those other types of financing, if that's something you do? Yeah. I mean, we have relationships with a lot of vendors who both either just relationships we've built over time because of our reputation or, 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 or you know, track record with that particular vendor, or we have uh, limited partners who are invested in lower carbon, who um, are helpful. Uh, uh, who, who can who can help in, in that regard, right? Uh, either they'll be connectors to the right decision maker for that kind of capital, non-dilutive capital, or they are themselves a, a debt lender or project financier, and it's like an easy, uh, it's an easy, easy introduction, right? Uh, a number of software companies are also probably in the realm of uh, not necessarily needing debt capital to fund fixed cost investments or facilities, but it's more like lending. You can imagine. All the companies that are trying to do electrification or trying to get, you know, solar panels installed in industrial or commercial settings, you know, lend, uh, structuring the structuring the purchase so that it's like an installment financing type of thing requires a lot of working capital, right? Or, or, or debt capital to debt facilities to, to make it happen. And so the same thing will happen there. Well, we'll we'll write we'll make the right introductions to people. Um, sometimes that might not be they might be too small for an institutional debt lender to to work with them. And so they'll say, hey, come back when you're up at larger scale, in which case, you know, they'll want to work with a lot of family offices. So, you know, family offices who are really interested in getting involved in climate and want their capital to go to work towards, you know, getting more solar panels and on, on residential roofs or commercial roofs in certain parts of the world, India, Mexico, Brazil are, are places where we've invested outside of the U.S. Um, and Europe. And so, you know, getting them connected to family offices, many of whom are LPs or many of whom that will, are, are interested in. And working with us in the future, uh, making those introductions are are, are are another path that we that we've taken too. Cool. You've mentioned so many companies and so many spaces that you could invest in. Yeah. One question, I guess, that a lot of people are asking themselves: What are the kind of characteristics or the traits of companies that you really look for when you're looking at like a climate tech company, whether it's software or hardware? Yeah. Can you give us a bit of a look inside the deal room uh, at Laura Carbon? How does it work? Yeah. So we have a three-part thesis maybe that's helpful to start with our first part thesis is trying to get to net zero slashing emissions to zero right so what's involved in that i think that's the bulk of most climate tech investments today and a lot of where our energy is too but you know it's energy transition electrification alternative foods uh, circular economy you name it right and in uh, uh we also have a fund dedicated to fusion so long-term r d bets and fusion is also another area that we uh, are thinking about for that bucket the second bucket is carbon removal where you know our, our partner Ryan Orbuck uh, leads, and he was really involved early in Stripe Climate and helped put together uh, the Frontier Fund. And uh, you know, basically any company that sucks carbon out of the air and 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 and, and is involved in permanent removal, thousand-year permanence minimum, right, is where we're excited about. A lot of different pathways uh, these days. I think we're pretty interested in um, nature-based solutions, but um, you know, all carbon removal is exciting to us, and we have a fund dedicated to that. And uh, also interested in all of the systems related to measurement, reporting, and verification for, for carbon removal. And then third, it's adaptation. So, you know, even if you were able to get to net zero and slash and suck carbon out of the air, 
get it all done tomorrow. You know, there's still consequences we have to live with today. And so, you know, how do we buy more time is how we think about it, right? How do we mitigate the worst effects of flood and drought, wildfire, what have you? So we are spending a lot of time there as well. And and so the way that we think about companies, I mean, in software, it's it's fairly straightforward, just like any other software investment, like, you know, like what, how strong is the founder? How large is the market? TAM opportunity. What's the, the potential moat that's possible here? What's the traction in the business? You know, are there signs of product market fit? How do we define product market fit? How, what's the velocity of the, of the team? There's just like the, the typical things you would look for in any other software company in hardware. I think hardware and deep tech, you know, the pedigree, if if it's early stage and we're, we're trying to do first checks, right? First checks are you know, potentially second checks, but a first check for a software company is going to be different than a first check for, you know, hardware deep tech company, right? But we try to understand the actual science. We have a bench of partners who are exceptional, you know, technical minds who have PhDs in material science or, you know, uh, our partner, Clea, who's head of science, literally has a PhD in carbon removal, which who knew that that was a thing, but, you know, that is a thing now. And uh, uh, she's one, I think, one of the world's experts on the subject. And getting a sense of understanding whether there's the science is novel and, and it's credible. And, you know, the, I think it's, there's rigorous scientific analysis of that, that our partners take, take on. I tend to think of it more from a commercialization perspective. And so, you know, trying to understand what is the true market opportunity here, how much market share would they need to become viable for our, for our fund, for them to return the fund at least one time. What is the you know, if there's feedstock or supply that's involved, right? How much feedstock would they would they re- require? How do they secure that feedstock? There's obviously like a techno-economic analysis that that's involved here that they're going to review pretty rigorously, and so, and those also the typical stuff of like how strong was this founder? Where do they come from? Why do we believe they're the best person in the world to build this business? And then the last set of things would probably be what what sets us apart from most traditional venture funds in the valley probably is understanding and thinking about climate impact is a there 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 is there's a bar that we try to hit the bar is you know not a set bar to be honest right we uh, evaluate every business in different ways and so we try to understand all right well how many megatons of or giga, potentially gigatons of carbon does this displace does this avoid does this uh remove and we make determinations there. If we find a company that can't even kind of get to one megaton, right? Like, you know, it's thousands of tons of carbon impact, but, you know, thousands of tons or tens of thousands of tons isn't megatons, right? So we would probably not invest, but it, it's all always a case by case. And, and the way I think about it from a software lens also is that there's aggregate impact and then there is the uh, accelerative impact, right? Um, and then there's additionality. So does this... Uh, uh, remove carbon in a way that would not have ever happened without this company existing. That's one point of view. And then there's also the point of view that, you know, we need to be making immediate impacts not 10 years from now or five years from now. We need to make impacts today. The the, the real value, I think, of software is uh, organizing the world's information or, or a specific set of information in such a way that you're able to more efficiently and more quickly make decisions or more effectively allocate resources in a quick manner, right? And so there's an argument there where you balance the aggregate impact with like the accelerative impact. And that's something we think about uh, in every conversation in every company. That's quite a lot and quite a lot of work to do. Um, Yeah. A couple of folks who you've mentioned, Claire, for instance, she was was involved with the Stanford Climate Ventures class that I was in last last term as well. And she's amazing. She's amazing. Um, On the topic of, of carbon, I would love to just 
pick your brain a bit more because we've heard from some investors that carbon removal is one of the most overhyped technologies that they wouldn't like to invest in right now. At the same time, Lower Carbon has launched a 350 million dedicated carbon removal fund. Um, can you share a bit more about Chris's mind and why that fund exists, what you're hoping for, what you're seeing different than other investors? Yeah, I, you know, I, I am certainly not the best person in the world to talk about this. You should just talk to Ryan about this, I think, and Chris or Clay uh, or Clea. I think those four people are probably the four best minds in carbon removal today, uh, alongside all the CDR companies that have come out of the woodwork. My opinion is uh, it's a it's a very asymmetric bet and uh, we kind of have to help build the market alongside the companies. There is a lot of uh, uh, demand, certainly. Uh, corp if you just convert the corporate commitments, you convert the frontier fund, right? You know, there is demand today to get these companies to a meaningful scale, right? Uh, and, and what's interesting is that, you know, when Ryan first started working on this problem, there were probably, you know, when I was looking at carbon removal, you know, several years ago, carbon removal, you know, there was a handful of companies that were being built. No one was building carbon removal companies. And today, I think you can track thousands, right? It's Cambrian explosion of carbon removal companies. Not every one of them is going to be successful, to be honest, but you don't need every one of them to be successful. There's an outlier effect in startups in general, and there's no reason to believe that that won't be true here. But there are so many pathways too. There's direct air capture. There's companies sinking kelp to the bottom of the ocean. Then there's uh, companies that are doing enhanced rock weathering. There's companies that are, you know, bioengineering trees like living carbon. So, so there's just so many pathways to consider ocean direct ocean capture, for instance. And, and so there's a lot of enthusiasm about the approach, uh, uh, catalyzing the different technologies that will be uh, uh, getting us to a sustainable price level per ton of carbon removed, right? You, uh, you, you can't, it's kind of a chicken or egg, the, chicken or, egg the, or the egg problem, right? Like you can't get the corporates to commit the dollars unless that there's something to buy, right? Unless that there are real solutions where they say, hey, this is viable. Like why commit dollars or say, hey, we're going to do carbon removal if you literally can't do it. Uh, and so there needs to be this like, you know, uh, on the supply side, a number of companies that come up that are viable, credible companies. And we believe we've, you know, invested in a number of them. You can't, uh, uh, and those companies then need to get those corporate commitments, those dollars in to be able to scale out their, you know, not the first of a kind project, but the second project, the third project, and so on and so, and so forth, right? And so this is the messy zero to one of the industry. But the 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 upside that I think about is this: there's a potential uh, path here to be a trillion dollar TAM, potentially more. Not only just from the voluntary commitments, and so part of the fun job here at Lower Carbon is being creative about how to catalyze more demand dollars to come into the ecosystem. Now that we have these thousands of carbon removal companies coming out of the woodwork, right? getting entire other industries to think about building their own version of the Frontier Fund to unlock the next $10 billion or the next $20 billion of demand, right? That's all happening in real time, as well as, you know, trying to get the measurement reporting and verification right. And we think we have good solutions there too with some of the investments we've made. But the the thing that the North Star for me is, okay, the voluntary markets themselves are tens of billions of dollars in, in, in from our point of view. The compliance markets, if they uh, materialize, which I'm I'm confident that they will, right? That's when you get to trillion dollar scale. And, you know, if you are operating in trillion dollar markets with a handful of the best CDR companies, asymmetric bet, right? In, in the, up, the the total upside of this is that these companies will be forming the backbone of, uh, of of companies that will be 
you know, in incredibly tremendously valuable, right? And and integral to our industrial economy to function. Not to say make human life uh, more more comfortable on this planet, right? Failure in carbon removal is kind of unthinkable, right? And so it's like too important to fail is, is how I think about that, right? So maybe that's too wishy-washy and too optimistic. I think there's probably more nuanced answers you can get from other members of my team, but like that's that's the directional answer. <laughs> well, we definitely need optimism in the fight against climate change, so that resonates. Uh, now that we understand kind of the three-step process that Lower Carbon yeah. thinks about for your approach, I'm curious about what you, Sean, specifically, not at the lower carbon uh, level, are excited about. Which technologies get you going and uh, are exciting to you today? Yeah, I mean, I I come from a software background, and so I find myself, like, I'm very fascinated by a lot of the deep tech and hard tech investments, and I think that's where the aggregate impact against climate will come from. And so I plug in there where, where, where I can, you know, in particular on the hard tech side, I'm excited about the rare earth supply chain stuff companies that are able to recycle uh, rare earths in a meaningful way or extract rare earths uh, in novel ways that people haven't heard of before. I, I think that's quite interesting to me. Uh, you know, again, traditional hardware, deep tech stuff, it's just there. there's a degree of high capital intensity to make those companies work. But if you can make them work, there, there's, there are real moats in these types of businesses, I think. Uh, so I'm excited there. The company that in our portfolio that I'm excited by in that category is Lilac, right? Lilac is doing lithium extraction in a, um, in a pretty novel way that I think that that business is going to make it, you know, the, 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 it's going to be an important, uh, important company, I think, not just for our portfolio, but like just in general. But I think that like, you know, coming from a software background and, and having a lot of energy to think about like, where can software plug in to this problem, you know, it's, it's kind of like a lot of the sexy stuff happening in climate is happening from the deep tech and hard tech so side. I'm still trying to find the really interesting software companies that are uh, accelerative, right? And so we've made a couple recent investments that, you know, are are in that vein. We've made, so, so looking very closely at like, you know, uh, tax credit marketplaces that are exciting there that are able to kind of uh, reduce the amount of friction it's that's that's there for any renewable energy developer to get access to dollars to to to, uh, to, to tax credit dollars to be able to um, you know subsidize their projects. Looking at companies that are able to reduce the friction for consumers to get access to incentive dollars. Right, I'm I'm being a little cagey about specific companies because I think these companies are mostly stealth. But you know the, the, these subject areas are quite interesting. That where where software kind of like. It's obvious that it plays a role in, in helping people get access to, to, to this capital. So the, the overarching kind of theme is that it's not obvious to me, or at least to me, that the IRA or any dollars that are locked up incentive in incentives will get deployed correctly, right? It's not just because that the pot of money exists doesn't mean that people will be able to access the pot of money, right? And so the, the same thing happened just to bring a parallel from a different industry, right? Like the Affordable Care Act was passed several years ago, and just because uh, it, the Affordable Care Act exists and you have subsidized health care doesn't mean that people will enroll, right? And so uh, there was a massive problem there. And so people had to go and figure out all sorts of different outreach approaches to reach out to the literal people where this would benefit so that they could get access to this stuff, right? So same thing here, right? How do you get people to electrify their homes? And how do you get them to know that they're eligible for like, you know, thousands of dollars of incentives to make the purchase like a no-brainer? It's very clear that anyone who has access to these incentives are able to, you know, uh, their conversion will be higher, right? Whether it's enterprises or consumers. 
looking at solving that problem through software, I think is actually uh, something that I've been spending my time on. But you know, not not sure if that's the answer you're looking for. But but that's where I'm. But is where my brain is these days. Well, the answer I'm looking for is to know where your brain is. So that's exactly the answer we're looking for. Um, from a software perspective, quick follow up question. Yeah. Um, yeah. a lot of these incentives exist in the U.S. ecosystem. How do you think about software companies building a global product versus building for the U.S.? Yeah, it's a good question. And and some of those companies I just mentioned also, or the 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 idea, the, the thematic areas, you have to believe that they can be something more than just, uh, uh, you know, uh, enabling access to certain, uh, you know, government incentive dollars, right? Like that's like the wedge type of product and you can build a big successful business there. But there is a, there must be a pathway to become something bigger than that. And, you know, we, we are a venture fund. This is not a charity. Like we are trying to return the fund. And, uh, you know, there, there's just one caveat there is, is I think you have to, uh, you have to believe that there's other paths to become, to build bigger businesses. Um, as far as building globally, you know, I, I think that having global ambition is important from the point of view of like, what, what is your real market size? And do you believe this is applicable to markets outside the US? I think that the, and we've made a lot of emerging markets investments, but I think that the, at least from a software perspective, you know, walk before you run is the approach that I take. And so, you know, win one market before you go on to three markets, before you go on to five, before you go on to hundred. So, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, I, I think that reflecting back on some of the investments I've made and, and some of like just anecdotes of successful case studies and unsuccessful case studies before I was investing in climate companies, you know, I, I think that, I don't know if I can share the story out loud, but there, there is a prominent unicorn, uh, rideshare company that, 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 you know, I think, or sorry, not a rideshare food delivery company that, uh, that made the critical mistake of like going to too many markets, going too fast and burning too much cash and trying to take over the world, right? And before really cracking uh, the economics of one market really well, right? And the, the ones that won in food delivery, I mean, there was a frenetic pace at a certain point, right? But like tracking and understanding your core markets, the ones that really are going to be um, uh, super margin positive, uh, that's how I would like to try to, uh, to try to build these companies. And this is especially true in a bear market where, where every dollar is more important than, than, you know, uh, every, every dollar burned is important. Right. And so trying to get to real fundamentals is something that I'm pushing a lot of founders on these days. That's really interesting that you should first figure out the economics. I think that's something that the, the hype in the last, in the last years might have sometimes, uh, made us forget a bit and it's good to come back to those fundamentals of this maybe. Yeah. Growth at all costs. Yeah, growth at all costs is has a cost. <laughs> uh, and if 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 you can if if the gravy train keeps running and you're able to raise money over and over and over again, I think that like maybe that there is a path to do that and it allows you to go faster. But man, so that's hard. It's hard. It's dangerous. And uh, even in the bull market, there are examples of companies that did that and failed and uh, and couldn't raise the successive rounds. Right. And all the companies that have these very high valuations right now, you know. Uh, they have to grow into them, and if they can't grow into them, they have to take down rounds. And I think that's uh, that leaves everyone in a really tough position in general. So yeah, know, it's a uh, it's a <laughs> tough time. Yeah, moving from tough times to things that might make tough times or difficult situations a bit more easy. If you had a magic wand, if you gave if we gave you a magic wand right now, what technology, regulatory, or systems change would you wish for within the climate tech ecosystem? Oh well, I mean. Yeah, pipe dreams like yeah uh, I, I, th I think 
I think uh, compliance markets and carbon removal would be huge. I mean, like I alluded to them before, right? But I think that it should just be set in the budget where an X percent of the tax base should just be spent on carbon removal. You know, I, I, that's a very unsophisticated take in terms of how government dollars work, but like that's how I would like it to work. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that that's that, that that'd be a giant mover. I think that's like, yeah, I'm going to leave it that that's probably the one the one thing that I would like. It would definitely see. be a big game changer if that happened. That's true. And it's the role of sorry, sorry, sorry. This is the role of government. Like the role of government is to make those kind of hard calls and to allocate cap. Like you know, they're capital allocators just as we are, right? And you know, sometimes they think in terms of like election cycles rather than like in decadal or hundred year cycles, which is like you know unfortunate. But sorry, not sorry to digress. <laughs> no, totally. And I come from Singapore, where one party has been in power for a long time, and that's where we could see government climate dollars mobilized for the long term because of that stability so i definitely think it's possible we just have to rethink the model last question from us is what advice would you give to future aspiring investors in climate tech yeah aspiring climate investors i would say i mean this it's the same formula that i would take for any uh conversation with any investor but i think there's really three things you can really do to help you know build a relationship with with future investor with with gps that you want to work with right it's send them deals they haven't seen before teach them something about a thesis that they hadn't really considered or thought about much before and deliver value in terms of uh products or projects that would be helpful right so organize dinners with interesting founders that they wouldn't have met before and make them the guest of honor or like you know uh uh you know do a bunch of customer introductions um, ready to go for a bunch of portfolio companies. And if you do that consistently month over month, over six months, I mean, people take notice, right? And the other thing to think about is just building relationships with founders and having, you know, advise founders on a specific area that would be helpful to them. And then, you know, when you're ready to go and think about joining a climate venture fund, you have a Rolodex of people who can say, hey, this person really helped me on XYZ subject, right? And so, you know, the, the, the real thing is underlying all of that is like, know yourself, right? Uh, understand what is your superpower, like what is your thesis area that you have conviction on that you understand better than anybody else and, you know, ha have a point of view on why you would be helpful to founders and before anybody else. I think that is like the recipe to try to, you know, to, to, to get to get a to get a job in, in venture in general. But in climate venture, it, you know, because it's so new and because thesis areas are coming out, uh, you know, every day, it, it's it should be easier, right? Actually, than than, than traditional venture, uh, because it's because everyone you should have a novel take where everyone is on the same playing field. It's not like someone has twenty years of in, of experience on uh, uh you know on on measurement reporting verification or carbon removal, right? Like that's an area that I'm trying to learn more about. If someone comes in and says, "Hey, I know the answer to all these questions, and you know this space has only really been up and running for a couple of years, and I have the best point of view," people take note. So, yeah, I think. That's the high level advice. That's amazing. And I think this idea of having a point of view is something that really resonates with me throughout our entire conversation today. From the moment when you talked about the 350 million asymmetric bat into carbon removal to having that point of view, that thesis, uh, if you want to break into climate VC, I think that's something really interesting. And I think another point is just that there is really a big role for hardware to play here, but that there might also be software plays. I think that is something interesting and that I'm also taking away. This is like this is like an evolution, right? I, I think that uh, in six months it might be the case that uh, carbon removal is the like 
uh, has become even more important than it is now because of whatever regulatory inflection or whatever other inflection. And, you know, I'll just I'll, I'll come back six months from now and say, hey, that software uh, detour was fun and felt safe because that's what I understood. But carbon removal really is where everyone should be spending time. Let's all do carbon removal. Right. Or it could be something else. Or it could be that software actually is like, you know, you know, there's a lot of new, interesting software companies like this space is changing so fast that uh, what I said today on this podcast today might be very different than when you hear this and listen to this when, you know, so I, I caveat it all by saying, hey, things are changing really fast. And if you really want to get involved, like just jump right in after school or when, whenever you have the chance to. Sure. Yeah, for sure. And we need to pace our learning and make sure we're moving as quickly as the market moves. So that resonates. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. It was great having you bet. down to zero. You bet. Thanks, guys. And if you ever need to reach out or you have questions or anything like that, just feel free to shoot me a note. It's just Sean, S-H-A-W-N at LowerCarbonCapital.com. So thanks, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Join us next time as we speak to another game-changing entrepreneur, innovator, or investor who is working to get us down to zero.